You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. In a world where we have so much marketing and sales tech, it's kind of amazing to me that revenue planning and forecasting remain pretty primitive in most companies. You could have literally a million dollar tech stack and yet you're still creating your business plan using a spreadsheet and you're forecasting results with pretty much a best guess from salespeople. Maybe this is okay. How's it working out for us? Is there a better way to do it? Here to discuss this and many other things is Tony Holbein, CEO of Grovebox, a revenue planning and analytics platform. He's also been a longtime CRO, RevOps professional, and is the host of the Revenue Formula podcast. Tony, welcome to RevOps FM. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a real pleasure. I'm excited to have you here and I want to hear the Growblock story and your story. I want to just give listeners a little context about how I even became aware of you because this was a scenario where I was just thinking to myself one day, there has to be a better way to do this than the sort of spreadsheet type process that I just described. And I went about looking over the internet, trying to actually find a product that fit my mental model of what this could be. And I even thinking maybe I should build one if it doesn't exist. And then I came across Growblox. I became intrigued and started speaking to your team. And that's how we got connected. But I'm curious for your side of the story, kind of your background and how you ended up starting Growblox. Yeah, wonderful. So I think the story that's relevant here is really I started my career as a revenue operations professional. I didn't actually know it at that point in time that this was revenue operations, what what I was doing. I think it was very much, you know, sales ops in the beginning and then it grew into something else. And then I've been doing this for, for a couple of years and over time accumulated a couple of more folks around me that were reporting to me, got more responsibility and so forth. And then, then I uh, somehow made the jump to chief revenue officer of that organization. So I basically became CRO at around 15 million of the company and really was in charge of all marketing, sales and CS, plus revenue operations, obviously. And we scaled the organization to around 50 million, did the exit there. Then because exit done, jumped to the next one, also as CRO, exited that team within one and a half years. Both of those cases went like the the unicorn exits that you might read about on TechCrunch, but they were like very, very sizable, really nice exits actually. And after those two experiences, really looking back, thinking, hey, what is special about me? You know, what differentiates me? And you know, what what could I take in order to bring it forward and maybe uh, you know, build a company around this? And my co-founders and I, we pretty much, you know, realized that it's really this, and this is shared between the three of us, it's really this data-driven system thinking approach to producing revenue. That was the initial point. And you know, what the three of us shared was really the, okay, we were in charge of building revenue in those organizations. And the first thing was like, okay, uh, you know, what's the budget that I'm getting and what do you want to have back? Right? So this is number one, really difficult to actually figure this out and Excel spreadsheets and so forth. But you know, once you kind of get over that hump, which I think you can do, then it's really in the the day-to-day forecasting, understanding where something is going wrong. And I was, I'm a paranoid person. Well, not, not clinically so, but, you know, generally speaking, I'm pretty paranoid. And I wanted to know immediately when there was something going off somewhere in my organization, jumping on this and fixing this, right? Because as all of those little, you know, issues kind of pile up, you'll just end up missing your revenue target. And you end up looking like a, like a douche in front of the board to your, to your CEO and so forth. 
I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern, and beautiful. When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows, it's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC, that's K-N-A-K, and get a special offer just for my listeners. And and the funny thing is, when you think about what are the tools available today, it's sales forecasting. That's kind of the tool that's available today, right? That's the only thing that you have to look into the future, you know, in your go-to-market operation, basically. And my, my experience was simply like, well, whenever there's a problem showing up in my forecast, it's kind of too late. It's not like I can do anything about this, right? So really what we then, you know, then back then did and basically now doing here in Growblocks is, well, you need a pipeline forecast, you need a hiring forecast. Yes, you need a sales forecast, but you also need a retention forecast and an upsell forecast and what have you. And I think this was kind of the starting idea around Growblocks, and we've been doing this now for two years, something like that. And you mentioned it's just a sales forecast and it's too late. And I was struck by that. I was looking around at what other forecasting tools are out there. There's some I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. They all seem very focused just on opportunity forecasting. That's it. And they're just like that one piece of the funnel. Yeah, I've lived what you just described many times. Are we ahead? Are we behind? Are we missing our number? Mm -hmm. And if we are going to miss our number, let's say in marketing, why? And then every time you're breaking out, you know, the back of the envelope and digging into all these different channels, very time consuming. So people don't do it as often. I like that you have struck upon, I think, a fairly elegant solution for that. We'll talk about it a little bit more. I just want to know, though, to the point that I kind of alluded to in my little intro, we have thousands and thousands of pieces of technology for so many things, but no one, maybe one or two other companies, but few companies are really doing this for the entire funnel. And I'm just wondering why. It seems a kind of logical thing to do because every company has this spreadsheet, you know, for their yeah. plan. What, what everyone is doing, by the way, so everyone is having five or six or seven different spreadsheets and trying to do the same thing, right? Just today, talk to a CRO of a, like an 80 million era company you know, I was kind of talking about go-to-market forecasting, kind of how we see the world. And he was like, no, no, I don't do go-to-market forecasting, but, you know, I have a forecast for my sales team, obviously, then I have like an opportunity production forecast. I have my talent attraction forecast. I have a retention and upsell forecast. And for the CFO, I need to do recognized revenue forecasting, right? Total, total AR, basically. And I'm like, yeah. And, and how many spreadsheets do you have to manage that? Well, you know, 20. And, would, you know, all of these things hang together, right? He's like, yeah. Well, that's actually what you want to have at the end of the day, right? When, you're, when your pipeline forecast or your, your opportunity production forecast is slowing down in one region, it's not like it's, it's overall, you know, overall everything might be green, but it's slowing down in one region. Well, that will have a knock-on effect on your sales forecast and that will eventually have a knock-on effect on your customer forecast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he totally, I mean, and that, I think this is the moment where kind of then he got it. What's pretty cool, like once you model this out, once you kind of really do this go-to-market forecasting in a, in, a, in a productized manner, how we're doing this, you really kind of get to a couple of cool magic features, right? Instead of you being 10% behind an MQLs somewhere, we don't say you're 10% behind an MQLs, we're saying you're $1.2 million behind by the end of Q3 on, you know, because of your missing uh, MQLs, right? M so modeling the impact kind of, of that in the future. Exactly. We can basically kind of price it all in. And when, especially, you know, when we're selling then to CROs and, you know, not necessarily only revenue operations, 
they they kind of don't give a shit about all oh, this conversion rate dropped by five percent. I mean, who cares? Well, that conversion rate dropped by five percent, and in three months, that's a two million dollar problem for you guys. And and suddenly everyone's like, oh, you know what? Actually, I do care about that right now, right? So really, the pricing in of those different funnel steps is extremely important. And giving this this transparency across and giving transparency is usually kind of a euphemism for almost also accountability, right? Kind of really making sure, you know, where, what is going wrong and being able to jump there and, and try and fix it, right? Those are the kind of things that if you have five or six different spreadsheets you're trying to connect that you basically won't be able to do. I'm actually curious as you're alluding to these conversations. For me, I have a sort of innate sense of order and, and how I like to do things. And so having all these spreadsheets and they change in one place and they don't change in another place, it bothers me mm -hmm. so much. Not everybody yeah. has that aversion. So when you're having these conversations with people, are you finding that people are connecting with this vision kind of immediately? Are you needing to really try to bring them around to a different point of view? How do those typically go? I'm always careful using the category word. I think that's usually a bit overblown when you like seed series A stage, but at least we are bringing forward a new set of capabilities, right? Or a new group of capabilities. And some people might refer to it as a new category, right? So I think number one, you do need to win the, the category argument. You know, why can't we do this in Excel? Why can't we do this? And I don't know, why, why do we need this? We didn't need this for the last 20 years. Why do we need it now? So this is, I think, one thing. I think the, the other thing is that usually you see that they're doing all of these things, you know, across the organization, but basically don't have the visibility to stitch it all together. It's funny when you show people when after we onboard them, show them their actual revenue engine end to end for the first time. It's a little bit like, you know, on, on Instagram, sometimes you have those, you know, blind people that suddenly see. It's, that's, that's kind of this emotion that's going on there. It's like, oh my God, finally I can see the whole thing. And it's pretty cool because, you know, we have like, I don't know, 20, 30 different customers and you see the, all of these engines look completely differently, right? And, and really having this moment also on the demo when you show just a demo kind of environment. Okay, so this is actually how the engine looks like and this is how I break it down to my sales forecast and to my, you know, pipeline forecast and to my, you know, people forecast. That's where it makes clicks and click for people. And I think then the other piece is, is really the accessibility. So when you think about Excel spreadsheets, people like you and I are super we're happy with Excel spreadsheet. You know, the CFO is happy with Excel spreadsheet. FPNA is happy with Excel spreadsheets. Do you know who isn't? Your VP of sales, your CMO your VP of customer success, those folks just actually are not able to kind of really dive deep into these Excel spreadsheets and feel comfortable with it. And you probably wouldn't even want to share that in the first place, right? And making that stuff available, making it you know available for them to use it, play around with this, understand the impact, and actually learn how some of the dynamics of the revenue engine, of their own ad revenue engine, how that actually works together, it's actually pretty powerful. So thinking about planning as a process, there's kind of the technology that we use to record it and track it and all of those things. And that's su super mm -hmm. important. But just as a process in general, what I typically experience is you have, you know, finance, CFO, or CEO, some combination of executives sketching out this plan in a spreadsheet at a high level. It gets improved by the board. And then it's kind of handed down like sales. Here's your number. Marketing. Here's your number. And then you have to go and figure out how am I going to get this number with, with the budget that we have, as you described. So it's mm -hmm. in many ways upstream of strategy or of certain types yep. of strategy. Is this the right way to do things or how do you advocate that planning cycle taking place? So there's the dreamy reality that we would like to see. And then there's the reality that's just simply out there, right? I think what is correct is you need to have this strategic conversation on a very high level. I think you need to 
craft this into top-down driven plans. And top-down driven plan is usually trying to achieve a financial profile of the organization that is attractive for the capital markets, whether or not those are private capital markets with VCs and private equity vendors, or if it's the actual public markets, right? That's what this is about, kind of roughly sketching this out. This is how this could look like. What then should happen though, is that once you get to a certain level of, hey, this is what we're gunning for, I believe what then should happen is that very quickly there's a bottom-up process started. And in many organizations, so small organizations below 250 people, it's someone in revenue operations, you know, pulling together some numbers. Sometimes it's within a week's time trying to kind of get there. And what usually happens is they're trying to reverse engineer, right? It's really a reverse engineering kind of exercise, which is, you could say by default already flawed, but I think this is what's happening in, in many, many cases. What I believe is actually the still the better way. Yes, you will need to work towards those top-down numbers. I don't think you have a choice. I think that's there. But number one, you should be including the actual subject matter experts in this field, which is your VP of sales, your VP marketing, kind of the commercial leaders, because they are the ones after you have you know put in your headcount, they're the ones that figure out, well, where can we tweak the engine to improve, right? What could we do? And revenue operations sometimes has a good part in that conversation, but you need to actually enable those folks to kind of, you know, carry this as well, which I've seen many, many times in Excel spreadsheets, is extremely difficult. And then ideally kind of meet finance from bottom up to top down. What usually then happens is there's a gap. Obviously, there's always a gap. And what I found is extremely difficult is, especially if it's a VP sales leading that kind of negotiation, it always has this feeling of like, oh, it's the VP sales trying to pull down his or her target to get more commissions. Right? It's almost like a, a egoistical kind of you know approach to it. And if you use something that's more data driven, it's actually easier for the CFO to be like, okay, actually, I fucking get that. Yeah, that's right. Yes, you know, we need to do something here. Or, and this is what I've seen talking to like Gong and Freshworks and a couple of those companies. It's like, yes, we know, we knew already. There's a gap, and now we need to all already now work on the gap plan, right? And that's how you enter the year. And, you know, you you basically then track the gap plan. You know, what are the things that you want to do? Who's responsible? How they're tracking and so forth. And, I mean, you want to have that enabled by a tool, right? So I've seen it so many times. If it's, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a gap plan in the beginning of the year or your gap plan in the middle of the year. Everyone holds up their hands as I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And then who checks in three months later, right? Kind of no one. And you want to have some of those things a bit more formalized and, you know, tracking the metric and seeing the revenue impact of that. And seeing how it actually behaved in order to really, you know, make sure you can actually check in on this and and have some accountability going on there. The process that you described makes a lot of sense. And I think I think in some ways that does happen. Probably the the meeting in the middle part doesn't happen as much as it as it should. It's a it's a mm-hmm. lot of top down and and kind of deal with it or the gap plan involves a lot of unrealistic assumptions on improvements on certain things, conversion rates, channel performance. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned capital markets. It's hard to think about this without tying in the decade-long bubble we've had in in tech with insane valuations, insane raises from venture capital, and the unrealistic growth expectations that have come along with that, and and those chickens very much coming home to roost right now. How distorted is our view of this whole process based on the last 10 years, or or is it? I mean, it certainly is distorted. And, you know, one of the simple ways of how planning top high level planning works in the boardroom is hey you're on this track it's so insanely top down it's even further top down than you think it is because really it's okay we raised for 
X million dollars valuation. Next time we want to raise, aka when we run out of money, we need to be worth three times as much because otherwise the rest of the board won't be happy. Okay, so in order to raise at that valuation, how does the organization actually need to look like? Well, we need to have that growth. We need to be at that, you know, ARR level. And then we might get the multiple to kind of reach that new valuation. And then it's like, okay, now, now that we know this is the ARR level by the end of that time frame, now let's work backwards and figure out how many AEs we need to hire, right? Kind of that's how it works. I think what has happened now is some of those expectations are a bit more muted. I think founders have started to push back against the boards like, hey, that's not going to happen. I think many boards are actually also starting to be like, well, you know, are you sure about this number? I think this is a lot of pushback is now just coming, which previously was just, hey, let's just spend more. It doesn't matter. Let's go. I think this is where, where some of this is coming from. I think the other piece, and this has been systemic over the last 10, 100 years. So this is kind of a bit of a new thesis forming in my head. You can only be efficient after you became predictable, right? So in order to be efficient, you have to be predictable first. And what this means is the following. So what we've seen now for the last two years is people basically kind of cut indiscriminately spend on the marketing side, people on the sales side, on the marketing side and so forth. Basically kind of they say, okay, we need to shrink 30%. Let's just cut 30% from everyone, right? And how this works is like VP of sales, I need 30% from you. VP of marketing, I need 30% from you. VP of CS, I need, I don't know, 20% from you. It's usually a little bit different there. And that's how they go in and cut stuff, right? But that is actually not making anyone more efficient. You just have now a lower CAC, that's great, but you will you know, equally also bring in less revenue. So you, you didn't become more efficient in that moment, actually, you just on a lower level, on a lower burn. Really, what you need to actually do is you need to have an understanding of the revenue engine. You need to see where you are predictable and where you're not. And based on that understanding, you can now go in and instead of indiscriminately just cutting across the board, you basically take things away that you know are not working or just have a lower efficiency of working, right? So things that might have a massively higher CAC payback compared to some other streams, you cut them down. By doing that, you basically kind of improve your efficiency, right? So the cost will go down faster than the revenue associated with that, right? And that is actually kind of the way that I've seen work myself kind of when I was a CEO of Falcon, which is now a brand watch, kind of that was, you know, one of the ways that we got through like a really terrible you know, war story, if you will. And I think this is, you know, the, the teams that are actually being efficient, that are actually getting to this 12, 13, 14 month CAC payback, that's how they're operating. It's like, okay, I know how this thing works. This doesn't work. Let's just cut it away. And then they have two options. Either they put that money in the bank account, which, you know, in, in many cases is what's happening now, or they can deploy that cash into the higher performing, so the, the more efficient CAC payback channels. And then by that, you know, increase revenue, but cost less. I mean, predictability is the magic word, right? That's what everybody wants. That's what every company needs. Yeah. What are the factors that you've seen? I mean, this is a kind of broad question and the answer will be different for different teams, but what are the things that predictable teams do or have? Is it process? Is it consistency in a sales approach? So we've all seen, you know, sales teams, you've had one superstar that can pull rabbits out of hats again and again, mm -hmm. others yeah. failing. Where, where does this predictability come from in your experience? Yeah, I think it comes from two things. One really comes from understanding your engine. And in many cases, it's not this sales person that pulls rabbits out of the hat. It's that person probably is getting dealt better inbounds. Maybe is doing more work on finding the right accounts. Maybe it's simply just a better salesperson. So I think it's less so luck involved. It's just, you know, there's some system to this. And that sometimes leads people to think, 
that all the predictability is encapsulated in the sales team, right? Which is going back to the sales forecasting bit. It's like, oh, you know, sales forecasting, that's really what's important. We need to have a great sales forecast and, you know, run a thorough process and then we're going to be predictable. I call BS on that. So I think I ran one of the most thorough forecasting, you know, habits probably in the Nordics. I don't know where else. And you know what? The only thing we got better at, the, the reps, you know, over month and quarters and quarters got better. I think it's a great sales enablement tool. But number two, we really just were getting better at calling, you know, whether we were missing or, or hitting. But at that point in time, you couldn't do anything about this anymore. And I wouldn't call this predictability. Predictability means really kind of having consistency in your performance. And a forecast usually doesn't help you with that. So where predictability comes from is understanding that the sales rep is not who's creating revenue. It's the top funnel that's actually generating revenue that's then just being, you know, converted all the way through. And symptoms of companies that I see that are less predictable, they always talk about the sales forecast. They always talk about either good or lazy account executives. They always talk about enablement for the sales team. They always talk about, hey, the forecast needs to get better. That's only 10% of the reason why you're hitting target or not. When you kind of imagine your full botile funnel, there are 20 other places where it could be improving, right? And kind of that's, that's not what happens when you look at sales forecasting. And then I think the other thing is, you just need to really, you know, check and see what's going on and everything that's trailing off just a little bit. You want to see this, jump on it, fix it. Predictability is not only a engine, but it's also monitoring the engine in the right way and steering it even kind of in smaller increments, jumping in and fixing stuff. And what I've seen myself is people just don't see that thing when it kind of goes off the rails. They maybe have a QBR, maybe they're catching it, maybe they're catching it 90 days later, maybe they're never catching it. Just, you know, earlier this week had a customer call where we found massive leak top funnel peeing that, hey, there's something not going in the right direction. And it was extremely simple with the software to be like, hey, it's over here and it's been trending down. And, you know, just checked in with them earlier today and it's like, ah, you know, it's actually that processing step was handled by a, by a person uh, and that person was overloaded. There was some, you know, changes going on and he or she had a very inconsistent way of actually dealing with that conversion step. And now they're fixing it. Already now you can see like conversion, you know, jumping back up to where it usually used to be, right? And these things, if you don't see it, you can't catch it and you can't fix it. And then suddenly what you thought you understood, what you thought was predictable is going in a different direction right now. And guess what? It's suddenly you don't understand it anymore. Suddenly it's not that predictable anymore. And it's simply a visibility issue. It's not a, oh, I don't understand my engine anymore. It's just you didn't you didn't see it. You talked about the marketing component and the sales component. And what we often see out in the market, I think, is marketing can hit their number, but sales will not hit theirs. And a criticism that I think is becoming more common in the market right now is that this is due to marketing being incentivized on the wrong things, like MQL, something that's kind of basically like a BS yep. metric or KPI. What are your thoughts about like, what mm -hmm. should marketing be aiming at so that sales and marketing hit their number together rather than having this gap? So I don't actually have any beef with MQLs. I think there is a problem in target setting. I think there's a problem in aligned target setting and so forth. If you simply split the funnel and don't treat every MQL the same, but say here's a hand raiser MQL, as a demo or a trial, and here's a non-hand raiser MQL, which is a webinar download, a webinar or a download of a new you know, white paper, whatever it might be, just have those two things you know, separate. And what you're going to see is the volume of the hand raiser MQL is going to stay fairly steady. 
the conversion rate is going to stay fairly steady. And, you know, the CMO of VP Marketing won't be able to, you know, pull any stunts to pull this up in the last day of the quarter to hit his or her target. That part you actually can't change. What they usually do is, hey, let's, you know, flush some more money into ads and try and get some of those lower value MQLs and overall hit the MQL number. And if you split those two things apart, if you measure them differently, then I think this MQL thing is not a problem. Honestly, I don't I don't think it's an issue. And, you know, what's going to come out of this is that marketing is going to miss the demo and the trial number that they should have been hitting. And they're going to, you know, fail there. Sales is going to fail there because of it. And it doesn't matter how much they overhit on the white paper downloads. That is not going to drive the same amount of revenue, right? So, you know, having the ability to easily split the funnel, having that ability and setting targets that then align with sales, I think if you do that, VP sales and VP marketing won't hate each other as much. And every VP marketing CMO knows this, by the way. This is not a, oh, oops, we didn't know. All of them know that stuff, but they're doing it because of, you know, CFO gives a top-down target, 5K MQLs, that's what you need to do. And then they're basically kind of working around on the MQL definition and then they get there. I think that has something to do with it. And for the sake of the organization, split the two handraiser, non-handraiser pieces, and then it gets usually gets like 95% better. What I have seen is probably 80 to 90% of opportunities tend to come from those handraiser leads. Is that your observation mm -hmm. with your client base as well? Yeah, it's hard to kind of put a specific number on this, but it's if you were to say revenue, then yeah, for sure. Because you can put your whole STR team on scouring through all of those, you know, non-handraisers and you'll get some opportunities. But just thinking about the sheer amount of cost that you're incurring on, on that pile, it's insane, right? And what I've seen in some organizations, and we've been able to intervene there a little bit, was massive ebook download drop. And then SDRs, so there was inbound SDRs, flooded with leads, didn't differentiate. And basically what happened is their conversion rate on demo requests to opportunity, it tanked. Why did it tank? Well, they didn't get to call them fast enough because we all know that's part of that journey, right? Because they are flooded with those ebook downloads that didn't convert at all, right? So it's like, I think you can get opportunities from that stuff. I think it's just more costly and more difficult. And I think in today's environment, you probably can't pay for that, right? So probably it's not going to work out. So I would say that I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing those ebooks, by the way, or those webinars is a great way to build out the top end of the funnel and, and so forth. I think you just need to treat them differently and maybe in an automatic fashion, maybe in a retargeting fashion, maybe you do something else instead of putting your SDRs or inbound SDRs or whatever kind of against that. What about outbound thoughts there? I know, you know there's the perennial debate, outbound is dead, outbound is alive. What do, what do you think? Yeah, I think outbound is alive and kicking. And I think it is a bit of an eco chamber in terms of oh, outbound is that. I think a lot of organizations are extremely successful with this. But yes, the goalpost has been changing in terms of outbound. The reason why people do outbound is they basically kind of, okay, you know, we've been pretty successfully growing on Google. There's nice demand. We can capture that. Great. And now we're going, you know, depends on LinkedIn or Meta or wherever you go. And suddenly it's like, oh shit, you know, this is not really working out. What else can we do? And then boom, you know, outbound pops up. And outbound in many, it can be extremely, extremely successful, right? And and there are many different plays you can execute. You can go completely cold into the market. It's going to get a little bit more difficult with AI and the content and so forth. And I haven't figured this out either. So don't get me wrong, but it still works. I think what some other companies are doing is basically only putting this towards their customer base. So kind of one example, I can't name the brand, but they have a super PLG, super cheap entry product for like 10 bucks a month or something like this. And they have thousands of those customers 
and their sales team is only working on those leads, quote unquote. It's actually customers, but only on those leads in order then to upsell them into their bigger tiers, right? And there, there are so many different things where simply a phone call or a direct email or a LinkedIn or something like that, where this is just a channel that activates someone differently than an ad or than, you know, a webinar invite and so forth. So instead of always saying outbound doesn't work or it does work, just think about does that channel of a phone call, does that work for you? And if the answer is yes, then yeah, maybe you can probably make outbound work for you. Thinking of it as a delivery mechanism for a message, just like an advertising platform. And is your audience receptive to that? Can you do it efficiently? I think that makes sense. When I was kind of in plan day, we basically were selling tool to an SMB audience, a very non-digitalized SMB audience. We unfortunately didn't get to execute this, but we had like plans for radio and we had plans for TV. And, you know, all of those things where nowadays B2B SaaS is like, oh, you you know, shouldn't be doing this. You can't do this. But we had like our customers sometimes were 50, 60 year old people running a cafe or running a restaurant, you know, or running a kind of a small bed and breakfast. And they just don't wake up one morning and be like, you know what, what I did for 40 years on this uh, blackboard with chalk, I can do this tomorrow on my phone, right? No one wakes up and is like, you know, let me Google this thing. And it's also not like they're scrolling LinkedIn uh, or, or Instagram. So how do you reach them? Well, guess what? They're listening to the radio all day. So, you know, that might be the channel to actually reach them, right? And and I think this is how people, you know, much rather need to, you know, think about all of these different channels. And and the phone is just another channel. That that's that's basically kind of how you need to think about it. We did radio for SMB at a past job, and it was very ex- successful. So you have to meet people where you are. The people that are like, you know, marketers selling to marketers that spend all day in the same LinkedIn groups are lucky. They have yeah. an advantage. Not everybody has that easy option. I want to get a little nerdy, if we can, with the platform and how it actually works. For me, it starts with your data model. You know, like lead MQL opportunity. What, however, you think about that. Is Growbox prescriptive? on what sort of funnel you have, or can you define any sort of arbitrary ad hoc funnel stages you want in terms of what your revenue engine looks like? So we actually started out being super prescriptive because we need to build out the better use case, basically. By now, we're like, we don't care. We honestly don't care. I mean, it's like how many and how few steps you want to have, whether you call them SQL, MQL, SAL, or SQL, and whatever. We don't care. So this is completely configurable from the customer side. And then also the dimensions that you want to split this whole thing by, kind of it might be different regions or markets or segments or channels or products or initiatives, whatever it might be, we actually don't care about any of these things. The only thing that it requires is, you know, if you can do a report on this, then we can pull it into Roblox, right? And this conversation usually doesn't happen like this with RevOps. It's more like with the CROs. It's like, you guys don't have that data. So no, we won't be able to split it by that. But when you talk to revenue operations, they know what they have and then they also know what we can pull in. But as long as you already have a report on this, we can split and add it as a stage or split it into a dimension, right? So this this doesn't matter to us. This is what is the hardest part I find. I mean, whether you're doing this with Snowflake and Looker or in your platform or anywhere, it's you know the garbage in, garbage out problem. And take, for example, one that you wouldn't think would be so hard, but qualification calls or discovery meetings. You want to track that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes a rep will book it through Chili Piper. So you have an event record in mm-hmm. Salesforce at the data level. Sometimes they log it as a call in Salesloft or wherever. So it looks a bit different there. Sometimes they don't do it at all. So you actually have a lot of, you know, marketing's kind of lucky because we can digitize and automate a lot of things. But when you're dealing with these people who are not process oriented, it's a big struggle I've found to get that consistency. How do you tackle that challenge? So what we found 
is it depends on the granularity that you should be starting with, right? So basically in this case where someone struggles with that data point, we would just say, hey, let's go one level up. Let's exclude this step for now or let's exclude that data point you know, build out the overall model, maybe only have six or seven steps and maybe only have two or three dimensions and, and let's stay here. And then as you use this and as you see, you know, not only you on a theoretical level, but also your leaders on a more practical level, see the need increase for that specific data point to be actually be more consistent going forward. Then let's kind of pull it into a platform and add this to the model and so forth. Everyone thinks their data is shit. Everyone. Like, all the time. What we are seeing though is that, you know, that's true from someone 2 million to 250 million. So there's no difference there. Everyone thinks the same thing. In most cases, large amounts of stuff is actually fairly accurate, fairly correct, especially when you aggregate, especially if you kind of put it on a cohort level instead of on a, you know, individual level, uh, which is actually enough in order to do the modeling, the forecasting and so forth. And then over time, as data maturity of the organization increases, maybe because of Roblox, maybe because of 20,000 other reasons, by the way, then just keep adding to the model as you go and kind of build it out. And the reason why you would want to do this is the more detail you add, the more granularity you add, the more information you will have on, okay, here's something going wrong, right? What we're seeing so, so many times is you look at the revenue, everything is kind of green, you're kind of 10% behind on hitting this quarter, hitting next quarter, whatever you want to be looking at. But if you drill in and double click on this, suddenly you see two or three areas that are like nicely green, nicely shooting in the right direction. But that one thing that's at 50%. And, you know, this is just one example. Usually you kind of see it further down. And, and if, if you don't have that granularity, if you don't have those insights, you would just never simply see it, right? And in our case, it's one of those magic features. We can just bubble it up for you, right? Kind of you don't need to go in, click around and find this one thing. We can bring it to your attention and be like, hey, here's something going wrong. It's leading to X revenue impact and give you then the tools to say like, okay, is this important for me to prioritize this right now with all the other shit going on or should I not, right? And as you add this additional level of detail, we can basically go deeper and deeper and deeper and help you to find these things. I'll give a personal example to, I guess, highlight what you're saying. This was maybe about 10 years ago. I was working for a company that was selling SaaS to SMB, but it was very much like a product-led motion before that buzzword existed. But it was, you know, selling $300 e-com purchases to SMBs. And there was a drop in conversion, which nobody could explain. Some folks looked into it very tenaciously. And eventually it emerged that SendGrid, which was sending our welcome emails when somebody first signed up for the product, mm -hmm. uh, had stopped working. And that apparently had a big impact on yeah. conversions. When you model those two things against each other, you could totally see how they correlated, but until yeah. you pulled that out. So that was super interesting, but it took, you know, many, wasn't necessarily myself, but many hours of people digging into that to find it. Can Roblox help you model those sort of peripheral things like that? The email isn't necessarily a funnel stage, but it's certainly something that influences the funnel mm -hmm. stage. Does it capture that sort of thing or is that kind of a bridge too far? What we are working on, not towards the end of the year, but kind of soon thereafter, is basically something we call it a monitoring node. Think of it as like you have a big, heavy piece of machinery in real world, and you want to have a valve that tells you, oh, the, the pressure is too high or too low or something like that. You can just attach. It doesn't do anything with the, you know, it still produces the same shoes or whatever it's producing, but you have this valve there. And that's what we're calling monitoring nodes. And you can basically kind of pull in all kinds of other things that you feel are connected to that stage. It will not influence the engine itself. It will not be part of the model. But you basically can say like, well, if this here is going down, then there are those other two monitoring nodes that might give you a clue where to look next, right? 
-hmm. And the real idea around Groblox and the modeling piece is not in all cases to give you the true end of the line root cause of, hey, it's because the sales rep is currently getting divorced and is drunk all the time that your conversion rate is dropping. We won't be able to tell you that but we will be able to tell you where to look specifically, right? Kind of very quickly, we can tell you pinpoint here you need to look. There's a piece of information that sits behind the data that you need to dig into. And sometimes it's like humans and sometimes it's it's other peripheral, you know, tools that aren't working out. It can be sitting in your product, you know, maybe something isn't pinging anymore. Maybe something is broken. Maybe, I mean, I've, I've did so many times the demo, demo form is down or the trial form is down. I mean, all of those different things, right, that might not be part of the overall model, but you can, you know, later on kind of adjust them as a monitoring node and monitor specifically there, right? And kind of then use this in order to speed up your root cause analysis even further to jump on it, fix it, and you're flying. We have observed that something like speed to lead, for example, how quickly we reach out to a hand raiser has a big impact. Is that an yeah. example of something you could track with a monitoring yeah. note in this way? Absolutely. And that would be super easy because it's in the same, I mean, it depends on the setup, but it's in the same tool, right? You just need to timestamp when the first call happened or when the first touch actually happened versus when the lead was created. And then we're basically tracking the difference between those two. So we're talking about the data piece. And so it sounds like you have the ability to connect to different source systems to pull all this data in together. Yeah. And do some kind of, you know, big mashup of all that data to produce the, the funnel. And then yeah. there's the modeling aspect, which is what do you do with those inputs to figure out mm -hmm. what's going to happen in the future, which is the part that's really hard, I think, to do for a human or, or in a spreadsheet. How does yeah. that work? Is it, I hesitate to use the, the AI word, but I'll, I'll use it. Is it AI? Is it machine learning? Like what's going on in there? It's pretty sophisticated math and statistics. I think we're starting to add a couple of machine learning pieces to it, which are, you know, yes, you can label this AI, but still very much explainable. You know, let's just say it like that. And we want to keep it like this as much as possible because while it's sometimes it's easy to, how does this work? And you say AI and everyone's, oh, okay, okay, I understand. Which means I don't understand anything, but I'll just accept the answer. In our case, we can actually explain why things are happening, which is especially when you need to trust something like this, because this is basically the backbone for your commercial teams. You want to be able that it's not just some random AI thing. It's like, oh, you know, that never behaved like that. I don't want to be sitting on a customer call and be like saying that. It's like, oh, you know, I think the AI went crazy. So we're kind of keeping it as explainable as possible, but basically what we're adding is time series machine learning and a couple of those things that are basically on the, we call it the leaf node. On the leaf node level is basically kind of adding some additional intelligence on top, right? But Generally speaking, how modeling works is in layman terms, we would call it the revenue formula. And the revenue formula in simple words is, you know, in this case, opportunity creation. Then there's a conversion rate to it. There's a time delay to it, which is usually a distribution. It's not like everything closes in 45 days, but 10% closes in 10 days and so forth. And then there's an ACV and the revenue piece. And then you have, you know, one revenue, one opportunities, right? And, and that idea of conversions and time delay that is true throughout your full funnel. It's usually a mix of both and then the ACV piece, especially on the customer side. And, you know, as you use these things kind of going back and forth, you, that is basically the glue that, you know, glues together the different stages, right? And, and that's where all of those dimensions are so important because, again, if your dimension is hand raiser versus non-hand raiser, the conversion rate from that to the next stage is much higher. The speed from that to the next stage is much higher. And then, you know, those opportunities coming from hand raisers, they convert much faster to a lot more revenue than the other stuff, right? So you want to start slicing and dicing all of that stuff down to accurately, you know, use all of the data in those, in those customer journeys 
in order to do as accurate as possible projection forecasting coming out of this, right? And this is really where it just gets, you know, theoretically you can do any, I mean, you can build Salesforce in Excel, right? I mean, this is where it, where it becomes nifty in Excel, but when you then add on top, you know, this revenue impact and, you know, how we're isolated and shared and, you know, all of that stuff, then it, it becomes something where you probably want to have a tool instead of using this in, in spreadsheets. So that's kind of where I was going to go, because when you think about, as I said, I, I really don't like doing this in spreadsheets. So for me, the mm. just efficiency benefit of having a tool to wrap around the process, that is an inherent attraction for me. There's probably many people, like you said, like, I'm doing it in spreadsheets. It's okay. I don't need to buy a tool to solve that problem. For you, do you lean more on the benefit of, yes, but now we'll give you insights that allow you to intervene and make changes that then produce a significant revenue outcome? Is that how you think about positioning so we, your product? So we, let's just kind of the value prop, if you will, right? I think the value prop is two things. One is a less choppy quarter results. So if you're like very much sales forecasting driven, if this is the way you see the future, you're overly focusing on new business, you're overly focusing on the end of the quarter, you're overly focusing on you know, the magic of the rep instead of the whole machinery, right? So if you widen your view from this to the full bow tie, you get more predictability, period. So I know this, we've proven this a couple of times. And what that predictability then kind of enables you to do is you are more confident in your decision making, you can be more efficient in, you know, moving resource allocation around and so forth, right? And then the other piece is really the, we can show you stuff that you otherwise wouldn't have seen period. It's not about, oh, you know, you could have done this QBR, but you were too lazy and therefore you didn't see it, or you could have seen this in this Excel spreadsheet. No, there's literally so much stuff that in Excel spreadsheet world, you're usually limited to like two dimensions, maybe three dimensions down. And then, you know, we, we tried, by the way, we, in the first year, this is how we delivered to customers and spreadsheets. And it's like, it didn't work. In a tool, we don't care how many dimensions you add, how many cuts you add to this whole thing. And, you know, because of that depth, we can see very granularly what's going wrong in some corner. We can bubble it up all the way to your attention. We can say, hey, this is going to, if you don't fix this, this is a $1 million problem by the end of the year. And no, Excel spreadsheets can't do that for you, by the way. Right enough, really having the predictability leading to efficiency. And then the, we can show you stuff that previously was invisible for you. And those are the two main value props where we're kind of angling our a return of investment basically around, right? Whether you can have a whole other conversation around ROI, but those are the two value props where the CFO goes like, okay, I can, I can fucking see this. Same with the CRO, right? Usually, by the way, I'm not sure who's listening most of the time, revenue operations, still surprising for them. These, these words are too fluffy. They don't really kind of fully get it sometimes. Mm. What revenue operations always kind of, you know, huddles around, it's like, oh, visibility, and it's going to make my life easier. Guess what? You know, your CFO doesn't care about your life being easier, you know? It's, they do not. <laughs> they, they, they do not care about this, right? And, um, uh, and you know, that's also sometimes what we're seeing when we when we don't get to talk to the CFO or the CRO, RevOps stumbles in trying to pitch this upward because they kind of say like, well, I can see the whole revenue engine and then it's going to save me so much time. And everyone goes like, okay, you know, next, right? And, and that's why it's kind of really important. It's really around predictability, producing efficiency. Fluffy words, I get it, but, you know, I think I explained it now a little bit. And then seeing stuff that you otherwise simply couldn't be seeing. No, that makes perfect sense. I think the efficiency play is wonderful, but it's not what's going to move the needle at the executive mm -hmm. level. But maybe last question that we have time for, just in terms of your vision, how this product will develop, like what do you what you want to achieve, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Where do you see this going? 
So I think what we're building here is, and I'm you know, usually not allowed to use that word, but we're building a digital twin of your commercial organization. That's what we're basically doing. And currently we're focusing on the revenue part, modeling this out, staying on the team and initiative and regional level, kind of, you know, doing the overall stuff. No one has done this. No one, there's no one else. So this is what we are focusing on. That's kind of what the starting point is. And then we really have two additional directions. One is going further into the people side. It's really kind of doing the people understanding of like, what are they doing? How does it work? Who is behind versus who is not and so forth, right? There's a, there's a whole other chapter to unpack, which you have some competitors obviously doing, being very strong there. And then the other piece is going much deeper into the cost side, which probably is going to be one of our next steps in order to really drive the question of what is my most efficient channel? Where am I getting my most money? You know, if I hired this, what would happen? You know, how much money do I get back and so forth? So it's really defining and explaining and replicating the commercial or the revenue organization that you're having and, you know, in multiple different dimensions than instead of only on the revenue modeling that we're currently doing, right? So, and once you go to that level, it's a pretty insane fucking tool at that point, right? Because you sure you can use it for revenue planning and, you know, some of the cost planning around there. I don't think we will ever be the planning tool, by the way. I don't believe that. But, you know, just the power of insights and how you could run through scenarios and check things out and, and the expectations of, you know, how things should be going versus what's happening in reality. I think this is a problem from like a $1 million organization up to $20 billion organizations. I mean, I talked to Salesforce and, you know, they're running everything in spreadsheets and talk to HubSpot. They have this, hey, we have a forecast for customers, for pipeline, for sales. And, and they have that per region, per product, per segment. They're literally running like a thousand spreadsheets or something like this. And it's like, wouldn't you like to connect all of that stuff? It's like, yes, I would really like that actually. But it's you know, I'll probably not sell to HubSpot tomorrow, but I mean, this is a problem that kind of is is there across, right? And especially if you then get on top some of the cost and then the people pieces going deeper into those, I think it's going to be pretty nuts, but you know, we need to go there first. Hey, super exciting. I'm a fan of what you're doing. I'm going to watch it closely. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me, Tony. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me uh, once again, and I uh, hope it was useful for everyone listening. Hey everyone, I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.